0: space tourism within reach
1: the fact that billionaires are able to self-fund their programs means we don't get to determine what they spend it on but it also means that the technologies they're developing are moving much more rapidly than any government program could
0: protests in South Africa
2: after the current president around came to power in 2018, he's attempted a kind of moral crusade. He's recognized that corruption within the African National Congress is systematic.
0: Encountering violent extremism.
3: Olivia isn't the only space where we have had to think on our feet from a public health perspective or a public policy perspective around social issues, and we know what has and hasn't worked in different spaces before.
0: This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. On the 11th of July... Billionaire Richard Branson joined Virgin Galactic's first fully crewed test flight to space. Billionaire Jeff Bezos will soon follow on the first Blue Origin crewed flight on July 20. Dr Malcolm Davis speaks to Dr Cassandra Steer from the ANU Institute of Space and College of Law. They discuss the potential implications of the new era of space tourism.
4: Today we are joined by Dr. Cassandra Steer of the ANU, who's a leading thinker in Australia on space law and space security. And we're talking about space tourism. As you might have known, the Virgin Galactic, under Richard Branson, flew their VSS Unity vehicle close to the edge of space, in my opinion. They didn't quite make it into space. But the more important thing about that flight is it's raised a whole pile of issues in terms of what the implications are about space tourism and what it means and where it takes us and some of the ethical and legal uh, aspects of that. So Cassandra and I will be hopefully stimulating your thoughts and uh, imagination about uh, space tourism. Cassandra, welcome. For starters, let's talk about space tourism as it currently stands. I see it very much as a luxury industry for the mega rich, but how do we get it to the point whereby space tourism is for the rest of us so that it's not purely for the super rich?
1: Well, thanks for having me, Malcolm. And it is at the moment very much a super luxury industry. Virgin Galactic tickets, the people who paid eight years ago, paid $250,000. And Richard Branson has made it clear that future tickets will cost more. Jeff Bezos' flight set to take off next week. The anonymous bidder paid $28 million for the luxury of that 11-minute flight. And SpaceX, which is not competing in the same kind of area, SpaceX obviously has developed and proven technology to shuttle astronauts to the International Space Station, so I guess a more sophisticated technology. But their first commercial crew flight will take place next year. Three individuals have paid $55 million each for a two-week stay on the International Space Station. So it is for the mega-wealthy only. And I think it's going to stay that way for a while. So. Obviously, the aviation industry also, when it started out, recreational air travel was only for the rich, and prices came down over time. And prior to COVID, I think there were tens of millions of flights per day. But the costs, the fuels, the technology, and the physical risks of Suborbital spaceflight, let alone that orbital and further spaceflight, are still much greater. And we have a long way to go with the technology before it becomes more accessible, both in terms of cost and also in terms of lowering the risk. So I think we're actually still a couple of decades away from it being something more every day.
4: Yeah, I tend to agree with that timeline. I see it as a couple of decades, maybe something in the late 2040s, early 2050s, where you could start to see new types of technology, such as space plane technology, that is you know, a step on from what Virgin Galactic flew uh, on the weekend, the VSS Unity. But also, space tourism needs to have somewhere to go to. Yes, obviously, if they can send passengers into orbit, that's a spectacular, overwhelming experience that potentially could be a positive one in the sense of changing people's perceptions of humanity and Earth and, and maybe doing some good there. But from a purely business perspective, in a business case, they need to actually have somewhere to go to. So that raises the whole prospect of commercial space hotels, the sort of things that were suggested in 2001, A Space Odyssey, where the space plane flew up to a rotating space station that was essentially a commercial space hotel on the way to the moon. I would say that what this flight has really done has generated two different responses. On the one hand, there's the space advocates such as myself who say, look, this is very positive as a first small step, but we need to go further. But it's also generated a lot of negative criticism, given the fact that you have this for the mega rich, and yet there's so much inequality in the world. And people are saying, is it not better to spend the money on issues here on Earth rather than investing in suborbital joyrides for the mega-rich. What's your thoughts, Cassandra?
1: Yeah, so I think the exciting thing about this technology is not suborbital joy flights. It's that in the next couple of decades, point-to-point flight will become possible. So we could fly from Sydney to London in a matter of hours. And that is going to transform what more of us are likely to use this technology for. And so in that sense, I guess there's two things to say about whether these billionaires should be spending money on developing this kind of technology. One is that it's quite helpful to separate out space technologies in general and even the commercialization of space from this one very small sector of the commercial space industry. It's a fraction of the commercial space industry and even of how we use space. I mean, you and I know that we are so dependent on space for our daily 21st century lives, for navigation via GPS, for telecommunications, search and rescue, bushfire tracking, climate change tracking, you know, we use satellite data and services every single day multiple times and so we need to be quite clear and space also can contribute to increasing equality it contributes to the sustainable development goals it contributes to tracking sites of mass atrocity crimes and you know we use space also for issues of sustainability and equality so we need to be clear that space exploration and space technologies themselves are an integral part of our 21st century lives and deserve continued investment and government support and deserve our attention. This very small fraction of the space sector of space tourism, we can debate whether or not that is adding value to human life or to the sustainability on the planet probably more work needs to be done about the sustainability of the kind of fuels being used. You know, both Branson and Jeff Bezos are hoping to demonstrate reusable technologies as well, which itself is a great addition to the technologies we have in terms of making it more sustainable and making it more accessible. So there are things to be learned from this very, very small human commercial space flight program that is being or programs that are being developed. But we need to separate them out from the bigger question of what space is for and why it's valuable. And I guess the other thing, too, is that I don't really care which billionaire is the first to get to space. I agree with you. I don't think Branson reached space. If Jeff Bezos goes a bit higher, maybe he will reach space, but it will be for a couple of minutes. These are not astronauts. (laughs) These are spaceflight passengers. And I kind of don't care who gets there first. But the fact that billionaires are able to self-fund their programs means we don't get to determine what they spend it on. But it also means that the technologies they're developing are moving much more rapidly than any government program could because they have high risk profiles and they don't have to answer to the public in terms of how they spend their money. And that is both problematic and exciting.
4: Yeah, I tend to agree. And I agree with you completely about you know the issue of who got to space first. Um, I think it's a non-issue. We shouldn't be wasting so much intellectual energy quibbling over where does space begin and who got there first. That's an irrelevancy. What matters more is what can be done with this technology down the track. If we can Get passengers into space, into orbit for the, perhaps the cost of a business class airfare, then how does that change the game in terms of economic activity and entrepreneurial activity in space? And what can we do with that? But that, of course, then generates a whole series of potential risks and challenges in terms of space sustainability. If you have much larger human presence in space, how do we maintain that activity in a, a sustainable manner and also a safe manner? I mean, space is a very harsh environment. One slip. And you're dead, basically. You know, they say in space, no one can hear you scream. Well, that's true. It's a vacuum out there and it's incredibly harsh. So I think that we need to think about safety. We need to think about sustainability. And finally, we do need to think about legal and the regulatory aspects. So I'd get you to talk a bit about that. How does international legal and regulatory bodies such as UNOSA and CAPUIS and other organisations work with the space tourism industry to make sure that what they're doing is safe and legal and sustainable?
1: So the UN Office of Outer Space Affairs, UNUSA, is not really a regulatory body. It's more a coordination and outreach body, really. It's the Depository of the International Space Law Treaties. It's the Secretariat of the UN Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, COPUS. And it does a lot of outreach around space for women, space for the Sustainable Development Goals. So it's doing very important outreach and educational work. The Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, COPUS, is the body under which the five international space law treaties were negotiated in the first space age during the Cold War. And the key treaty is the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. And that treaty states that states, countries, are responsible for every activity that takes place in outer space in perpetuity. They're responsible under international law, they're liable under international law. Article six of the treaty also obliges states to authorize and continually supervise every space activity under their jurisdiction. So what that means is that no commercial activity, no private activity can take place in space without a state first authorizing it and licensing it. And because of the international responsibility placed on states, It's on the onus for states to come up with licensing and authorization that is going to decrease the state's own risk of something falling on its shoulders. So every country interprets that obligation as they see fit. The U.S. has more space laws and licensing standards than any other country, for instance. Australia, since 2018, we have our own Australian Space Agency. We have the 2000 Space Act which provides certain requirements for licensing. And that puts in place uh, safety standards. It puts in place environmental impact statement and study requirements. The space agency is looking at developing higher standards for space sustainability, for instance. So CopUS also came up with the long term sustainability guidelines in 2019. And we also have the space debris mitigation guidelines. So these are non-binding declarations coming out of those UN bodies. And we also have a UN General Assembly Resolution 7536 that was adopted at the end of last year, another non-binding instrument that talks about coming up with clear norms of responsible behaviour. So all of this is to say nothing takes place in space without national regulation and authorization and the onus is on states to start implementing those guidelines more proactively into their licensing laws and australia has made some very clear international commitments and could be doing more to come up with clear statements of what is responsible behavior what do we consider to be sustainable what are we going to require both of our commercial industry and also of our defense activities But that's what goes on around the world. So nothing happens without a state licence. Copious itself doesn't work very closely with the commercial industry, although we do have commercial actors who are observers to that process. Really, the onus is on countries, on the states themselves, to be proactive around that.
4: And finally, because I know we're almost out of time, I have to ask the key question. If you have the chance to go, if they get it down to a business class airfare and it's all safe, are you going to get on that rocket and fly that bird up?
1: Well, I still struggle to pay business class efforts, to be quite honest with you, but my answer used to be no because I'm not that interested in these vertical launch rockets. It would be great fun to have a few minutes in suburb in microgravity. I would love to see the Earth from above, but to be quite honest, I'm quite into the Virgin Galactic technology, which is taking off in a plane and then being dropped when you're airborne for only a couple of minutes to have that kind of high G-force trajectory. I quite like the idea of doing that, but I would only do it if it were point to point, if it was going to get me somewhere. I wouldn't do it just for the joyride because I think we do have to think about the environmental impact of our flight, whether that's airplanes or suborbital flight.
4: Yeah, look, I'm sort of the same. I do want to see them develop space plane technology that takes off like an aircraft, flies into orbit, docks with a space hotel, comes back and lands under its own power. And I think that's probably 20 to 30 years away. But VSS Unity that flew on the weekend is the beginning of that process. If the opportunity was there and I could afford it, I would absolutely go into space. I'd want my hour or so in orbit. But thank you very much, Cassandra. That was a great discussion. And hopefully that will generate a lot of debate and thought out there about space tourism and where it takes us. Thank you all.
1: Thanks for having me, Malcolm.
0: The arrest of former South African President Jacob Zuma has sparked mass unrest in the provinces of Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. Research intern Kwasi KwaNyana speaks with Ibrahim Abraham from the ANU about the recent violence and the significance of Zuma's arrest with regards to corruption and wider stability in the country.
5: Thanks for joining the podcast, Ibrahim. This week following Zuma's arrest has been turbulence. There has been a mass unrest and looting, especially in Zuma's home province of KwaZulu-Natal. In the last hour, South Africa's Defence Minister announced that she will be providing a surge of troops, bringing the total number up to 25,000 to help police deal with the unrest. This is reportedly South Africa's National Defence Force's largest deployment since 1994. And I think the primary question that international onlookers are asking, and which I'm going to put forward to you, is what is the significance of Zuma's arrest?
2: Well, you know, Zuma was president from 2009 to 2018. So when he turned himself in to prison authorities on July 7 to begin serving what could be a 15-month sentence for contempt of court, and particularly then when the prison governor said, we don't actually have ex-presidents in prison, we only have inmates in prison. I think it demonstrated the operation of the rule of law. Now, I know in Australia that term has been somewhat abused in politics in recent months, but it really demonstrates that laws will be consistently and equally applied, even for the powerful. Now, as I mentioned, this Prison sentence is for contempt of court. He defied the constitutional court, the equivalent of the high court here in Australia, by refusing to testify in the Zondo Commission into corruption and actually going further and condemning the Zondo Commission as biased. And ironically, Zuma himself set up this Zondo commission before he left office in 2018. The commission's investigating widespread networks of patronage and other forms of corruption that have been labeled state capture, basically the total co-option of elements of government and the public service by, in particular, wealthy and influential business people. Now, the Zondo commission, it's still ongoing. There's suspicion Zuma might have preferred jail to spill in the beans. He's very much considered to be completely wrapped up in this web of patronage, not necessarily at the top of the patronage pyramid, to mix the metaphors. A business family called the Guptas, who have been close to Zuma since the 90s, are rather believed to have been at the top of that patronage network. They're believed to be in Dubai. After the current president, Ramaphosa, came to power in 2018, he's attempted a kind of moral crusade. He's recognized that corruption within the African National Congress is systematic. It's not just a few rotten apples, it's systematic, and he's tried to address that while fighting against factions within the party who owe their prosperity to patronage. Now, Ramaphosa is probably not entirely innocent in this regard. He's a very talented businessman, but he did owe some of his early success to his political connections. Nevertheless, Ramaphosa has a kind of moral authority particularly during this sort of COVID crisis that Zuma did not have. Friends and and acquaintances I know in South Africa have been able to refer to Ramaphosa as our president, unironically, which they never could do with Zuma.
5: Mm. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that as well, that in the ANC party at the moment, it seems that the party is split between a Ramaphosa faction and a Zuma faction with his loyalists. And one thing that Ramaphosa has really been trying to overcome is to be seen as everyone's president. So within the ANC, I would say that the Zuma loyalists think that this kind of moral crusade that he's on is ill fit for purpose. Um, It needs to be the redistribution of wealth. And most recently, we've seen that with Zuma condemning the Zondo Commission, it was the attempt to undermine Ramaphosa's Leadership, in my opinion. I'm not sure if you agree or
2: not on that. Oh, I do. And I think there's certainly the Zuma loyalists, but there's a broader network of those who are opposed for their own interests uh, to Ramaphosa, particularly the suspended Secretary General of the ANC, uh, Ace Magashuli, who was accused of corruption and has also been voicing opposition to Ramaphosa. So I think that what you actually have is a network of similarly self-interested individuals who share the desire to undermine Ramaphosa's anti-corruption initiatives.
5: Mm. And so why has Zuma's arrest spilled out onto the streets? So we've discussed what it means for the party, but why has it sparked such civil unrest?
2: Well, protests started in, in KwaZulu-Natal province w- when Zuma went to jail, earlier hundreds of his supporters had flocked to his rural residence. But then violence spread beyond his rural heartland to Durban and Johannesburg. I think there's really three elements involved in this unrest, and it's gonna take some careful detective work over the coming months to untangle them. If we rank them in terms of serious threats to security, at the top there's obviously, as I mentioned, these networks opposed to Ramaphosa's anti-corruption initiatives. This includes Zuma, Zuma's allies. Allegations have been made by members of the government about some of Zuma's family members, Fan in the Flames, also a group who claims affiliation with the former armed wing of the ANC, some local branches of the ANC, some local ANC officials, whether they are close to To Zuma or not, they had their reasons to oppose Ramaphosa. You also have these very serious allegations by government ministers about systematic attempts at sabotage, attacks on the power grid, for example. I mean, that's obviously very concerning. But you know, these are allegations, and there is a fair amount we can say of conspiracism in South African political life. So I think we need to wait and see about that. You know, it's also the case Zuma has popular support. He's immensely charismatic. He's rallied the rural poor when he became president in 2009. That was greeted by much of the the left in South Africa. He was seen as an ally of the poor, an ally of the unions. He was seen as very different from... The person who eventually succeeded Thabo Mbeki, Mandela's successor, who was seen as this sort of quite arrogant, but very sort of cosmopolitan and bourgeois figure. He's been able to rally ordinary people, particularly in uh, the rural, you know, sort of Zulu heartlands. But it's important to mention that he's never been able to unify the Zulu nation. And in fact, more recently, other Zulu politicians, the Zulu king, have condemned the violence. The Zulu king said it was shameful that uh, some people have wrongly associated this unrest only with the Zulu. South Africa really hasn't had that kind of so-called tribalism problem in the post-apartheid era that many other sub-Saharan African countries had. What South Africa has experienced is political divisions that cut the ethnic groups, the national groups into. But secondly, we have to say there are organized criminal gangs in South Africa, and they seem to have opportunistically inserted themselves into this unrest with you know, raids on warehouses, for example. And then you've got, I would say, impoverished opportunists who've been suffering from the consequences of the pandemic, unemployment. You know, unemployment is 33% in South Africa. If you include discouraged job seekers who have just given up hope of finding work, it's 43%. So these people are relying on remittances from family members who do have jobs, the limited resources of the welfare state. And the reality is that looting is not uncommon in protests in South Africa. You know, even moderately sized protests I witnessed, particularly in Cape Town, would have, you know, running for cover. There have also been somewhat opportunistic attacks in the past during political protests aimed at small foreign-owned businesses. But as I said, there's these three elements, political activists, organized gangs, and ordinary impoverished people acting opportunistically. And it's very hard to untangle that at this stage.
5: Just speaking more about the protests in general, South Africa is often dubbed as protest capital of the world. I think prior COVID-19, it was averaging seven protests a day. Do you see this protest, what's happening right now, similar to the ones in the past? Or do you think it's different?
2: I feel that what we're seeing in the last you know, few days in South Africa is all these tensions that have been bubbling under the surface of the country for decades. All these tensions basically being turned up to 11. So you can certainly see echoes in the violence in these few days from you know, previous campaigns and previous unrest. I think the key difference here is the impact of COVID.
5: Speaking of COVID, South Africa has been one of the worst hits in Africa by a large margin, and it's been one of the top COVID tragedies across the world. How do you see the violence fitting in with the COVID-19 crisis?
2: You're right that certainly South Africa has been the African country most heavily impacted. There have been over 60,000 deaths related to COVID-19. What South Africa has seen is a series of lockdowns. You know, one of the options that the government has is to declare a state of emergency but they've already, you know, instituted a state of disaster for dealing with COVID pandemic. There's been a ban on public gatherings in force, including political gatherings, a ban on alcohol sales, a ban on tobacco sales, thousands of soldiers already on the streets. And it's exacerbated unemployment. Tourism is vital to the South African economy. The hospitality sector is vital to the economy. So all these kind of petty services jobs have just been going. And now you have this expanded unemployment rate up to 43%. And we have to remember, you know, as frustrating as lockdowns are in Australia, You've got a lot of people in South Africa live without running water, live in single-room homes, living in overcrowded conditions, and it's simply unbearable.
5: Do you see any of the problems that South Africa's experienced in terms of COVID-19 and this outbreak of unrest experienced anywhere else in the world?
2: You know, in recent days, the protests that we've been seeing in Cuba are quite similar to what's been going on in South Africa. They've been attacking the government, but really sparked By persistent poverty, which has been exacerbated by the decline in tourism. My concern would be that what we're seeing in South Africa is something that we're going to see in the future as the consequences of this long, prolonged lockdown and poverty really just frustrates people.
5: We're running out of time, Ibrahim, so I just want to finish it off on one final question. Do you think the surge of army support alongside the police will be enough to quell the violence, or do you think more long-term strategies are required?
2: Well, certainly we've heard just recently that the government is going to uh, increase the number of troops up to 25,000, and I think the hope is that combined with the sheer fact that in some places there's nothing left to loot is going to lead to an end of the violence But, you know, in terms of the other issues that the country needs to deal with, I mean, you know, one hardly knows where to begin. As I mentioned, unemployment is 33 percent or 43 percent, depending on how you measure it. The welfare system is limited, but government borrowing is high. The costs of borrowing are high for South Africa. The fact is the economy never really recovered After the global financial crisis, growth was just trickling along at one or two percent. The Ramaphosa government would certainly argue that its anti-corruption initiatives, which really sparked this crisis, are vital to boosting the economy and to improving service provision.
5: I largely agree with you there. And I'm very curious to see with the Zondo Commission, if there is recommendations that come forward that address systematic corruption and what impacts that would have on long-term economic prosperity within the country, hopefully relieving some of the stresses that are seen in the country today.
2: It strikes me that in South Africa, corruption and this widespread patronage network It radically distorted the economy, but it didn't completely derail the economy. In fact, you know, a lot of those ill-gotten gains, the revenues from the slightly dodgy government contracts, a lot of it gets plowed back into the economy one way or the other. For example, through uh, remittances to family members, but through conspicuous consumption. It's not an efficient way to run an economy by any means, but it did keep the country hanging together more often than not. But, you know, it may well be that like Zuma's legal strategies, this approach to social cohesion, remittances and limited welfare and a culture of conspicuous consumption has just run out of road. It's, it's just fallen off
0: a cliff.
5: Thanks once again for your insights today, Ibrahim. No problem.
0: Dr. Tegan Westendorf speaks to Peter Lowe from frontisis Consulting and Training about counterterrorism and the roles of countering violent extremism and preventing violent extremism. Peter and Tegan discuss these issues with a specific focus on gender, regional complexities and the cyber realm. Great to chat to you today, Peter. How are you doing? Yeah, well, thank you. You've often
6: said in your work that education is necessarily the core of CVE programming. Can you tell us a bit about why and what might this look like in practical terms?
3: Yeah, certainly. I think the CVE and PVE are terms that are kind of used interchangeably around kind of countering versus prevention. So when I talk about CVE, I also include the concept of PVE in that. I think with any intervention that you're doing around, you know, a social and contextual problem or issue like violent extremism is... One of the core things that has to be done is an education piece of that. And, you know, it's no different than the medical model when we're addressing our social health issues and there's different layers that you want to address. And, and the co- one of the core of that is education, because we need people to be aware. We need people to be aware of what the issues are, what contributes to the issues. But we also need people to be aware of how they can work against the issues as well. So what they can do if they don't want those kinds of things in their life. And and I think we've seen this, you know, with the AIDS campaign, for example, we've seen it with mental health campaigns where it seeks to educate people around what is mental health? What are some of the symptoms of mental health? What are some of the things you can do about that? But also how can you work to ensure that you remain healthy? So that kind of prevention aspect as well. And I think we need to be looking at that more in a CVE perspective from, strengths-based approaches that we certainly do some of in terms of resilience and community building, you know, valuing diversity. But I don't necessarily think that we connect all of that work enough to how that's also preventative in the space of violent extremism.
6: I'd just like to maybe tease out this idea of PVE and CVE then and where education comes into it. It sounds like you're saying that we should be differentiating between efforts to foster community resilience, such as digital literacy to counter misinformation and disinformation campaigns, and then separate to that, looking at the sort of disengagement and counter-engagement strategies. Is that right? And does education then work on both of those efforts and in different ways?
3: I think once you're in the space of countering something, it's intervention and diversion, it's no longer prevention. So true preventative work is trying to make sure that it doesn't occur in the first place, trying to build individuals' resilience to even being vulnerable to those messages because they're aware of what they are from the beginning. So when you say digital literacy, definitely preventative work in terms of understanding for young people, the online space and how the online space works even just simple things like the algorithms that are used to feed you more information that's the same as the information you've already searched for, and understanding how that can then give you quite an echo chamber of ideas. And certainly some of the individuals that I've worked with in this space, that's been exactly one of the things that's contributed to their radicalization to violent extremism, is going online and then getting multiple and multiple echo chamber messages without Understanding that they're not going to receive the alternative information or the counter narrative, if you like.
6: Absolutely. So, how then do you imagine this sort of community resilience? If we're looking at these particularly at risk individuals that are, you know, perhaps spending, and we've heard a lot about this since COVID, spending more time online, particularly being at risk if they've got, you know, lower socioeconomic opportunities. How do we reach those people if the reason that they're at risk is because they're not really engaging with their community?
3: Well, I think this is the issue with CVE and PVE generally, is that when we're doing prevention work, we're not actually trying to reach at-risk people. We're trying to give a message globally to everyone. Once you start trying to identify those at risk or a smaller subset of the population, you're actually looking at some of the CVE work around diversion, because what you're recognising is that they are vulnerable. So how can we then fill the gaps in their vulnerability, if you like, to reduce their vulnerability. So it's, it now becomes about understanding that they show particular indicators that might mean that they need a bit of extra work. The prevention stuff is the global work that you do. It's everyone. It's the information that everyone needs to get. Um, and it's no different than the social health model where the, the messages that go out to people around skin cancer are the same for everyone, whether you're in a higher vulnerability group or not.
6: So I'm also then wondering, I think it's quite accepted to talk about people being at risk because of the effects of COVID. But one of the things that has sort of confounded me about this is that we haven't seen an overt increase in the number of women who have been radicalised. So given that women have, you know, suffered generally the greatest losses to their socioeconomic opportunity and experiencing the greatest vulnerability as a result of, you know, some of the effects of covid What do you think we can learn from that? Do we need to be talking more about gender in this space?
3: Definitely, and I think sometimes we have to be considering what engagement in violent extremism looks like as a broad spectrum. It's not necessarily the people who are prepared to plan and conduct an attack. So, you know, do we know for sure that women aren't necessarily getting involved anymore or we're just not looking in the right direction? I mean, I think we have to unpack that a little bit as well. And a lot of work's going on to try and understand the difference in the process for different genders and what that looks like. And the access that different women may have currently might be very restricted. It doesn't mean their motivation isn't there. It just means they don't have the capacity right now. So I'm not suggesting that there is a bunch of women out there. I just think we have to be specific about what it is that we talk about when we're saying we have seen so many women get involved
6: when we talk about cve i think that this is an idea and an approach that is in some policy spaces being discussed in terms of how evidenced it is how to go about it and how valuable a strategy it is now looking at the u.s strategy for domestic terrorism that was released last month there is first of all a really overt naming of a public health approach like you've been talking about, as being really critical to delivering that strategy in an effective and long-term effective way. And second of all, there's just no doubt about community resilience and CVE approaches being a necessary part of this. For the sort of Australian policy landscape, is there anything that you can say about this sort of call for more evidence in order to actually invest in CVE in Australia? Are we just sort of lagging behind some of our international counterparts or what's sticking that conversation in this stage of, but where's the evidence that it works and therefore we should do
3: something? Look, I know that there's a lot of work being going on in terms of building some evidence base. And I think everyone's keen to have an evidence base for the work that you do and it's great if you've got that. I think in the CVE space we have to accept that we actually don't want to have an evidence base because that means we're going to have many more cases than we actually want to deal with to be able to get the data that we want. I prefer to take an evidence-informed approach. CVE isn't the only space where we have had to think on our feet from a public health perspective or a public policy perspective around social issues and we know what has and hasn't worked in different spaces before, addressing suicide, the current mental health poor You know, even our approaches to managing COVID, we have information out there that can inform us about what works when we take this real preventative approach with a whole of community. What we have to do is be able to have that conversation with government and funding bodies about how that evidence is going to look different and how the investment is still worth it in the long run, the impact that an event, whether it's even just an arrest or particularly an attack in the CT space, the impact that that has on the entire community can't be measured really either. Financially, we could probably put a dollar figure on it, but the impact that it has on social cohesion and the resilience of our community and our acceptance of diversity, we haven't even started to measure that. So anything that we can do to prevent that from occurring is productive for our society.
6: Absolutely. I think that's really one of the biggest challenges in the sort of strategic policing space that KPIs are about risks that are not mitigated in the sense that they never present as a risk to community, but they're about risks that are stopped before hopefully blood is spilt. So it seems to me like we really need sort of acceptance of a reframing of the issue as public health for risk mitigation, as opposed to limited to this sort of strategic policing, which is, you know, hugely warranted and very effective so far. But I want we,
3: we can't be defining success in this space for us on the basis of CTRS. I think that's what's been problematic. I understand it. It's easy to measure and it certainly speaks to community safety to a particular level. It doesn't tell you about how many people though actually still hold a belief or are motivated. It just tells you about how many the police have identified and therefore been able to intercept. It's a little bit problematic for us because it means the risk and potentially the threat is still present uh, until the point that there's a detention or arrest what would be better for us as a community is if that risk wasn't present in the first place and that's where the prevention comes in and i've said it a lot before you know we may never determine whether the things that we do in the prevention in this space go on to stop someone from being a terrorist but what we do know is that people with vulnerabilities to violent extremism are the same as people with vulnerabilities to general criminogenic behavior to joining you know organized crime groups to other things that cause issues and problems in our community so even if we're preventing some of that by work in the CVE space, that's got to be worth it. If we're reducing the risk of something to anyone, that's got to be helpful. I don't know that that's quantifiable, but we certainly know that the work that we put in in prevention has worked for us in other social health and public health areas. And I think we need to be relying on evidence informed in this space for now.
6: Absolutely. So, the role of ideology in radicalization and in de radicalization programs is really hotly contested, at least in the academic space. It seems to be spoken about as a bit of a chicken and egg debate what comes first, either the social and emotional factors or the ideological drivers. So, as a practitioner in this space, who's worked with people who've been convicted extensively. I'd love
3: to know your thoughts on this debate. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating debate that, again, we're trying to put people into binary positions of what came first, and I think it's far more fluid than that. And I don't think it's either or in this space. I've certainly worked with people who really had no ideological drive. Their motivation was other factors, whereas I've had other people who it's entirely ideologically driven. I don't think that you have to necessarily be a committed ideologue to be involved in violent extremism, I've certainly worked with kids and adults who aren't committed ideologues. Uh, there are other factors that motivate it. This is the most difficult thing with this process is it's so individual and it really forces you to have to understand the individuals involved because it's not as easy as saying if we address the ideology, we address the risk, we don't. There are other factors sometimes that drive people and the ideology, may or may not be present. And even if it is present, it may be layered on top of what is their primary motivating factor. And if you don't address that, a sense of belonging, for example, they'll just replace the ideology with something else, maybe or maybe not. So it is about actually getting to what is at the core of what has motivated them to either adopt the ideology or to act on an ideology that they previously held and never acted on. And sometimes that can be driven entirely by ideological belief and sometimes it's not. It's really tricky to say that it's either or. And, and I think when we try and quantify things down to numbers, you know, the percentage of people who are driven by ideology or not, we actually miss the individualization that's required in the space. We have to be understanding that while the data may tell us if it ever does, you know, however many percent of people are driven by ideology, the individual that's in front of you may not be one of that percent. And so you really do have to understand the individual that you're working with and what, what is their core driver, what's their core motivation for being involved in the space.
6: So it sounds like when we hear about there needing to be a sort of local perspective or an Australia specific zooming in on what violent extremism looks like here. You're saying that it actually needs to zoom far beyond the local context and into the specific individual for that kind of D-rad programming to be successful.
3: Absolutely. And I mean, it's clear to me that, you know, violent extremism and terrorism is look the same across the world, but I'm doing work in the moment in Indonesia and the drivers for engagement in violent extremism over there are vastly different to the majority of people that I've worked with in Australia. You know, it's contextually specific, but it's individually specific as well. Not every individual who lives in a particular town where the majority of people are violent extremists are violent extremists so you can't even look at it on a specific community level either you actually have to look at the individual and that's what makes it really tricky and really intense in terms of the resourcing that needs to go into that because it requires individualised assessment Thank you so much Peter Welcome
0: That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money We'll be back with another episode soon